2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13. And David made a name for himself, and when he returned, yeah, and David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down the 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Then in chapter 9, And David said, Is there still anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him David. And, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Mechur, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mechur, the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? I picked on him because it's his birthday today. So he had to say Mephibosheth four times fast. Let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the chance uh, now to be before it and for uh, the opportunity to open it up before this, our church family. God, we pray uh, that the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead will be at work in our hearts, would be shaping us, conforming us to the image of your son. God, we pray that as your incredible, amazing, steadfast love is on display in your word, that it would be so revealed to our hearts that our hearts could not leave this place in the same way that we are in now. Lord, transform us by your spirit according to your will and for the sake of your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The story you just heard part of from 2 Samuel 9 is an amazing testimony of uh, God's steadfast love that we'll see uh, as we go. And uh, I, to, to start, I want to ask you, what, what is it that makes you lovable? What is it that makes you lovable? If I, if I went around and asked different people in your life, I'm sure I would hear all kinds of amazing things about why you are lovable. If I asked uh, your friends, I'm confident they would tell me about your great personality and your, you know, over the years, the memories you've made together. If I asked your boss at work, I'm sure your boss would tell me about your great work ethic and your dedication and your willingness uh, to just kind of keep going and doing the right thing. If I asked your kids, they would tell me about all the great things you have 
done for them. And I'm confident that if I asked your spouse, they would tell me about how much they just enjoy your dashing good looks, right? All kinds of great reasons that you are lovable. And you are all those things. I know this about you. You are great. You're great. But I, I want to ask if we can dig just a little deeper than, than those things about what it is that makes us lovable. Why, why, are we, why are we lovable? And especially, what makes us lovable in God's eyes? I, I don't think anybody probably is going to you know, get mad and walk out of here if I tell you that God loves you, right? God loves you. But why? Why, why does God love you? That's what I want to get at a little bit as we go today. Our, our story in this part of 2 Samuel, as we come into chapter 8, 9, and 10 today, it is at a, a height of this book. Last week in chapter 7 is the, the theological pinnacle of these books, First and Second Samuel. And so maybe this, if we're going to stick with the geography metaphors here, this is kind of the plateau after, the, after that pinnacle, after that peak of just things are going really, really well. This is a high point in David's reign as king. And so it's incredibly uh, uh, telling and beautiful that we have this picture of, of David, the king's love for someone else in the middle of this story. As we, as we follow, follow, been following David's story from being a, 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 past, a pasture, a shepherd out in the pasture, all the way now through all that he's been through to now being king, uh, we have seen that he was described at the very beginning as a man after God's own heart. That's, that's actually how God told, Samuel told the previous king, Saul, that Saul was rejected and God was looking for a man after his own heart. That is, somebody whose heart, their character, their, their desires, the thing that they, things that they love and they treasure mirror that of God. That's a pretty high description of somebody. Uh, somebody whose heart is reflecting God, a man after God's own heart. And we see, although it's short-lived, when you turn the page next week, You'll see it doesn't last forever, but even then there's good, you know. But um, David here, we have a portrait of what a true king after God's own heart would look like. We see in David a mirror, a picture of God's heart himself. So as we look to David and the way he loves, what we're really looking for is how does God love? What's the character of God, the nature of God? Because we don't come to the Bible just praising heroes for the sake of praising heroes. We come to the Bible looking for God. What does this tell us about God? So we see it displayed in David, but only to the degree that we point to God are we faithful to understanding this. So that's what we want to see. We want to see God's heart today. And in 2 Samuel 9, David has this interaction with this man named Mephibosheth. Let's all say that together. Ready? Mephibosheth. All right. You can just describe that. You can call that name however you want, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it today. Um, but we were actually introduced to him. You know, we're going at a pace. I can't cover every detail. But we actually heard his name for the first time back in 2 Samuel chapter 4. So I want to catch you back up. I'm going to go back to there to, to get here to chapter 9. As of 2 Samuel chapter 4, Mephibosheth was only five years old. So let's, let's see what was his life like at that point. Mephibosheth, though he was five, he didn't know how great he had it. But he had it pretty good. He was born as the grandson to the then king, King Saul. So he is royal. He is in the royal family. Now we, from this side of the pond, look over at England, and we know that weird thing that they do in England with this royal monarchy. So we, we know it's strange to us, but we get the idea of this. There's this royal line, this heritage. And so this guy, Mephibosheth, would have been second. David, then Jonathan, then Mephibosheth. He is right there in the royal line. In addition to his 
very high social position. His dad was Jonathan. And of all the people we've seen in First and Second Samuel, this guy was remarkable. He seemed to have it all. He was a military leader. He won battles all by himself and in leading a whole group of people in an army. He was incredibly humble, though, though quite strong on the battlefield. He was not arrogant. He was not self-serving. He wasn't trying to build himself up. He was gracious and kind. He is probably the, the, one of the best examples in the Bible, Bible of a loyal friend. What, I mean, what more could you want from somebody as a mentor, as a father, than somebody like Jonathan? That's what Mephibosheth had going for him. Royal blood and an incredible mentor in a dad. Now, of course, that means he had a horrible grandfather in Saul, but, you know, not everybody can have everything perfect. So he, things were pretty good for him as of being a five-year-old. But one day for him, everything changed. And one day, his dad, Jonathan, and his grandfather, Saul, were out at battle, and both of them were killed in the same battle. So in that moment, Mephibosheth goes from being second in line to the throne in this royal family and with an amazing dad to having none of that in a day. And in that time, they they knew that this, with Saul and Jonathan both being killed, there was going to be a struggle for power for the kingship in Israel. And so they knew this could get dangerous. Because in that time, when somebody became king that was not a part of the original king's family, the tradition, the expectation was that the new king would come and wipe out everybody in the old king's family just to start with a clean slate. That was the anticipation in the ancient world. And so from that, on that day, being a part of King Saul's family went from being a blessing to a major liability in one day. In the ancient world, this would have been a, 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 an expectation that things were about to get awful for Mephibosheth. And more than just being on the, the, the hit list for the next king, Mephibosheth, it got worse for him. You see, the nurse, his, the person that was taking care of him, knew this expectation. And so they, out of love, this nurse picks up five-year-old Mephibosheth and begins to flee and run for safety. But in the process, Mephibosheth falls and he, something happens to both his legs and he is crippled for the rest of his life. In one day, he went from being second in the throne, second in the, the royal line, incredible mentor, incredible family, to now the opposite end of the social spectrum, being on the hit list, being a nobody, and crippled for the rest of his life. He even moves to a town called Lodabar, which either means no word or, or no pasture. It quite literally is a way of saying he lived in the middle of nowhere. He was now a nobody living in the middle of nowhere, and crippled for the rest of his life. Imagine, as a five-year-old, he doesn't understand any of this, right? He doesn't know what's going on. But at 10, 12, 15, 20, 25, he, he knows his story. He knows who his grandfather is. He knew, knows what his position used to be and what it is now. Can you imagine the, the trauma that he's been through and what that might look like as a young adult growing up? How, how that trauma, and some of, some of our, I know some of our teachers are going through trauma-informed practices and in foster care, you have to kind of go through these trauma-informed things. When we have trauma, especially early in our lives, it shapes everything. So we don't get a lot of Mephibosheth's story, but you can just imagine if that's how traumatic one day was at five years old, what the rest of his life must look like. As a teenager wrestling with why and how and, and all these questions he must have and how hard life 
must have been. Fast forward now to chapter 9 in Mephibosheth's life, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And Mephibosheth hears word that the now King David is looking for members of Saul's family. He doesn't get any more information than that, apparently. But he just knows that he has been summoned because of his lineage. He's been summoned as a descendant of Saul and Jonathan. He has been summoned to the now King David's, into now King David's presence. And, and I can just imagine that he has, had, he has been living in fear of this day coming for a long time. I imagine this is the kind of thing he would have nightmares about. You have this, right? Like the, the potential things that could be bad, you dream of them in the middle of the night sometimes. This is probably one of Mephibosheth's nightmares, that the king goes to the middle of nowhere and summons him. He had to expect that this was going to be the last day of his life. We learn through this chapter that Mephibosheth now has a son named Micah. So he is probably a fearful not just for his life, but for his son's life. And so when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 6, we hear, we hear what Mephibosheth would have been expecting. It says, this, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. The, the narrator sticks it in our face. He is the son of Saul. This is the son of the former enemy of David. This is the one who tracked and tried to kill David for over a decade, trying to murder him. Surely David isn't going to like this guy, Mephibosheth, just because of who his grandfather was. But something remarkable happens. Listen to the words of King David. Verse 7, he says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and, and you shall eat at my table always. Always. What a dramatic reversal from everything that he would have been expecting and everything his life has been like since he was five years old. What an incredible upside down way of that day going. Hannah, back in 1 Samuel chapter 2, sang a song. We've referenced this a couple of times since we were there that really gives a theme all the way through. And here, here we just see it happening here in Mephibosheth's life. But Hannah, way back, prophesied, the feeble bind on strength. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He makes them sit with princes and inherits a seat of honor. Mephibosheth goes from being a man who is crippled, living in the middle of nowhere, to now being seated at the king's table. What a change. What a reversal. What a remarkable show of grace. This morning, I want you to know that Mephibosheth's story can be, and hopefully is, your story too. There's a lot that you and I can have in common with this man. I want you to know that just like Mephibosheth, you and I have the opportunity to receive a loyal love. That's what I think David's displaying here, a loyal love. So you and I can have the opportunity to receive loyal love. Similar to what Mephibosheth was offered, you and I are offered this free gift from the Lord. The key word in 2 Samuel 9 is what 
the ESV translates as kindness. It's in verse 1, 3, and 7. And it's the same word I mentioned back last week in 2 Samuel 7, this awesome Hebrew word hesed, which means steadfast love, faithfulness, generous, an unmerited kindness, grace and, and good things that have been given that are not deserved. That's what David shows to Mephibosheth. That's what the focus is. David is a king after God's own heart. So I want you to see that our king, our God, the one who is ruler over all, that's what he offers to us. This same kindness, this steadfast love, this unmerited kindness, that is what God offers to us. Why, why was Mephibosheth offered this love? What is it about Mephibosheth that makes him lovable? Why would David love him? What did he do to be worthy of this kind of love? Maybe, maybe he was really handy with a hammer. <laughs> maybe he was a good carpenter. Maybe he was a good warrior on the battlefield. Well, I mean, he was crippled, so maybe, but probably not. Maybe, maybe Mephibosheth was a really wise man, a really wise counselor. Maybe he was a deep theologian. Maybe he was a good student of the Torah and knew God's word. Maybe he was a, 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 just a really good personality, and he'd make a good court jester. We don't know. Maybe some of those are true. We have no idea. None of it is said. Because none of those is the source, the root, the reason why he is loved. Why does he receive love from the king? He was loved solely because of who his father was and a promise that the king made to his father. That's the only reason Mephibosheth is that we don't know anything about this guy other than his family and that he was crippled. We know nothing else about him. But we know that his father, Jonathan, made a promise, made a commitment with David. And because of that, David shows love to Mephibosheth. Way back in 1 Samuel 20, Jonathan, who was the heir apparent to the throne, was recognizing that his dad was wicked, that God was going to rip the throne away from Saul, and he was going to give it to Jonathan, I mean, give it to David. And way back there, Jonathan very humbly and admirably begins to help David's cause and support him as he's going to become the next king, instead of being mad that Jonathan wasn't going to be the next king. And in the middle of that, David and Jonathan make a promise, a covenant together. And part of that covenant was that Jonathan asked David to promise that when David becomes king, that David would not do what everybody expects in the ancient world for the new king to do, which is to cast off or wipe out the entire family of the old king. Jonathan asked David for that, and David said, yes, I, when I become king, I will not wipe out, I will not cast off your family. David promised he would do that. And here in 2 Samuel 9, probably a solid 10 or 15 years later, David is keeping that promise. Mephibosheth is offered kindness and love from the king, not because of anything he did, but because the king made a promise to Mephibosheth's father. I asked you a moment ago, what, what makes you lovable? Why are you lovable? I am confident many of you are handy with a hammer. You are good carpenters. There are many of you who are wise counselors. Some of you have a great personality and would be a great court jester. But none of those things are the root, the core, the central part of what makes you lovable. We have, all of us, have this 
deep, deep longing to be loved. And many of us put that longing onto things about our personality and our gifts and our talents and all these other things and say, this is why I am lovable. But the King of Kings has made a promise to your fathers. And because of that promise and because of who you are and nothing else you've ever done, you are loved. God told one of your ancient, ancient fathers named Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God took a, a, a little feeble tribe of people and formed them into a nation called Israel and he told them this in Deuteronomy 7, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt." If you took that, that little paragraph, those few verses, and just clipped a few things, he says, do you know why the Lord set his love on you? Because he loves you. <laughs> you take out the middle phrase, why the Lord set your love on you? Because he loves you. And he's keeping a promise. He's keeping an oath. Well, well that was just the ancient Israelites. That doesn't apply to me today, does it? Same language. First Peter chapter 2, Peter writes to Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do you know why God loves you? Because he loves you. Do you know why God has chosen his people? God knows. I don't know. But he has. He has chosen people to receive grace and kindness from the Lord. God loves us because he loves us. And because he's keeping a promise. Because he has, by his own incredible grace, a sovereign plan that is free, that is his, his choice, his election, his desire, and he has chosen to give grace to his people. That There might be a temptation in us to say, I, I, I'd rather be loved because of something good about me. That might feel more, more like, like we could own that a little bit better. God, God loves me because, of, you know, they, because I'm smart or wise or articulate or kind or good-looking or handy or useful or generous any number of characteristics about ourselves, we can say, this, this is what makes me lovable. But we, if we think about that for a moment, that would be a terrible reason to be loved. Because in a moment, any of those things could disappear. Just ask Mephibosheth, who was crippled from the day from when he was five years old for the rest of his life. If your spouse only loved you because of your looks or your ability to make lots of money, or your heritage, or being a good teammate, or any number of characteristics about you, that would be a very rocky place to have a marriage. Because at any moment, any of those things could be taken away. You know what the root of any good godly marriage is? A covenant with God. That I have made a promise, and I'm going to keep my promise. The root of our marriages is a covenant not a consumer partnership 
where two people share goods and services in an equal amount, and so long as the goods and services continue to be shared in a, a helpful way, then we will stay in this relationship. That's, that's how we treat consumers. That's how we treat buyers and products and things. That's not how we treat a relationship. And praise God, that's not how He treats us. He does not love us because we're lovable. He loves us because He loves us. And He's made a promise, and He's going to keep His promise. The question is not whether God has enough love or has, does He love you. He, the question is, will you receive it? Will you receive the loyal love of the Father? Now, someone might hear that God loves us because He's keeping a promise, and they may think, well, that, that doesn't sound very affectionate, keeping a rule. That doesn't sound very loving. No, it, it is keeping a promise, but it is a very lavish keeping of a promise. And you can hear the affection in the way that David kept this promise. David, David does not come. We're looking for God's heart, and we see it here in this king after God's own heart. David does not come to Mephibosheth with a begrudging heart, like, I guess I got to because I said I was going to. That's not the heart you hear in David. No, David was lavish in keeping this loyal promise. It truly was love. It truly was kindness, generosity, not just an obligation to him. And one of the ways we can see that is that the specifics of the promise that David made to Jonathan, all he actually promised was not to kill him. <laughs> he's been keeping that promise this whole time he's been king. He didn't have to do anything else, and we could have looked back and said, David kept his promise because he didn't kill Mephibosheth or anybody else in Saul's family. That would have been enough. But David didn't stop there. David didn't stop at just sparing his life. Did you hear the things he promised him? Yes, he spared his life, but he also gave him an enormous inheritance and wealth. He says, everything that belonged to your, to your the grandfather, to his father, Saul. Saul was king. Do you know how much land that is? I don't know, but a lot. That's the wealth that he just inherited? David didn't have to do that. But it gets even better. It says, he brought him to his own table to eat at my table always. That is an oddly specific promise. Like, you, you're going to eat here. Here's your assigned seat, Mephibosheth. And, and it seems to be important because it's mentioned four times, verse 7, 10, 11, and 13, that, that Mephibosheth gets to eat at David's table. Why would he repeat that thing? Why is that so specific? We start to understand. We read how it's worded in verse 11. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. There it is. That's why it's such a big deal. Having a place at the table is symbolic. We talk about this, having a seat at the table. But usually the way we talk about it is a, 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 a place of power, a seat at the table of the board of directors who makes decisions. Mephibosheth was not given a seat at the board of directors table. This is not a seat of power. It's way better than that. It's at the family table. It's at the table where he gets to be a part of the king's family. You hear this? He's back in the royal family. He went from being cast out of the royal family, sent to the middle of nowhere, crippled and destitute for the rest of his life with no promise and hopes. And now he's back at the king's table. This is an extravagant, generous, overflowingly abundant, gracious act of loving kindness from the king to a nobody who now becomes a somebody at the king's table. Do you know that that's the kind of offer God gives to us? Do you know that you have been offered 
a seat at the table. And don't worry, it's not a seat at the, 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 the power director's table that you have to somehow figure out how to contribute to the way the world's going to keep spinning around the sun. It's a way better table than a seat of power. It's a seat of family. It's a being a part of the king's family. That's what God offers to us. The wages of sin is death. Just like Mephibosheth could have expected to die, we should expect to die for our sins. And yet God in His incredible grace has given us a free gift that spares our life. We don't have to die for our sins. That is a gift, an enormous gift. And it would be way more than enough if God just did that. If God just didn't kill us. But He didn't stop. He gives us an enormous inheritance. Ephesians 1.3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or Ephesians 2, 7 speaks of the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness. Do you know the wealth you have spiritually? God owns it all. And you're in His family. It's all coming. It's all coming. You're a part of the family. You have incredible riches. But even more than that, you have a seat at the table. Ephesians 1, 5, He predestined us for adoption. He brings us in the family of God. He's predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Do you know your Savior? Do you know Christ as Lord? Have you seen your sins and the wages of your sins and what you deserve? Have you repented of those sins and trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? If so, you are a child of God. God Himself is your Father. The King of kings and the Lord of lords has brought you to His table. What grace, what loyal love, what kindness, what generosity. God is so loving and so kind. He's keeping a promise. And he's inviting you to receive His love. I want you to look at this story from the other side now. That's Mephibosheth, but what about David? Why would David act this way? Why would David act this way? Yes, he promised to Jonathan that he would not kill his descendants, and he did that. But he went way above and beyond. Why would he go way above and beyond? Look back at the, what his goal was. I, I jumped us in the middle of this in verse 6. It wasn't quite so suspenseful. It was suspenseful for Mephibosheth. It wasn't suspenseful for David. His intentions were clear. Verse 1, he says he wants to show the kindness for Jonathan's sake. And in verse 3, he tells us where this kindness comes from. He says he wants to show the kindness of God, the steadfast love, the hesed of God. The reason why David wants to show this kind of kindness to Mephibosheth is that David has himself received that kindness. We saw this back last week, chapter 7, uh, 2 Samuel seven fifteen. God promised him, my steadfast love will not depart from him. Speaking of David and his descendants. David has received this steadfast love. He's been Mephibosheth. David has received the unmerited, unearned grace of God. And so now he can turn and show steadfast love to Mephibosheth and so many others. That's how you know you've received it. That's how you know that you've got it, is that it's overflowing in you. The, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, poured steadfast love on you. Your little cup won't hold it all. You're not going to run out. God's going to keep pouring into you. You can share it. You can share it with other people. 
And that's what David's doing. David is the king after God's own heart who has received the steadfast love of the Lord. And it's flowing out of his cup in every direction, all the way out to no pasture, to nowhere, nowheresville. And he's pouring out love even there. That's how much steadfast love has been poured into David. Back in chapter 8, we saw the blessing. We, we, we skipped over most of the details there, but it's over and over again. David is winning battle after battle, and the refrain there and twice in that chapter is, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So God is blessing him, continuing to bless him. He's gotten blessing upon blessing, anointing, kingship, eternal promises, and now he's winning every battle everywhere he goes. And 2 Samuel 8, 15 says, David administered justice and equity to all his people. David is at the height of his reign. He is mirroring the way God intended him to reign and to rule. He is pouring out steadfast love. He's pursuing justice and equity. He is showing the people what God's king should look like. He is showing the world what it looks like for God to be on his throne and for anybody under him to be administering justice and equity like God intended it. That's how David is blessing people. He is bringing blessing to others because he has received blessings from God. Are you keeping track of your blessings? We could count through David's life. It's in paper, black and white for us, and we could count blessing after blessing after blessing and fill a page of all the blessings David in David's life from God. Could you do that for your own life? You and I aren't in the redemptive line like David is, but we've been blessed in many ways. You're alive. That's a start. God has blessed you with today. That's a start. And he's offered you Jesus. He's offered you Jesus. That's way more than expected. But if we're honest, for many of us, the blessings have kept coming after that. Hardships for sure. David was still going to battle, so things weren't all peachy for him all the time either, right? But the blessings have continued to flow. Are you counting them? Are you keeping track? Because the more we keep track of them, the more we acknowledge our blessings, we recognize our cup keeps getting filled up. Maybe we ought to share in kindness. Maybe holidays are especially a time we're mindful of those who are in need. Let this be a season where you see God's blessing and you find ways to be generous, find ways to bless other people. How has God been lavishly and loyally loving to you this year? Who can you lavishly love as you finish out the last few months of the year? I think David illustrates for us one of the most profound realities of our Christian faith because of how he, how he does this. His kindness is loyal, but it's also generous. This, this, the way these things are held together, I'm still getting my head around this, so this, I'll try to make this clear because I just think this is incredible. But David is doing what he should do, right? He's keeping the rules. He's doing what he should do. He's keeping the promises. But he's not just in the bare minimum. He's not just squeaking by. And his whole heart is in it. His whole heart is in it. So this is my, my encouragement to you. When, if you. For you that have received the loyal love of God, show loyal love and do it because it's both your duty and your delight. It's, it's the thing you ought to do and the thing you want to do. David's loyalty, his, his, his desire to keep his promises was not begrudging or, or just out of being forced to do it, but he wanted to. He promised Jonathan and he really wanted to show kindness to Mephibosheth. We know that because he went so far and above and beyond. It was lavish. And twice he references it. He said, I'm doing this for Jonathan's sake. It's like you can hear the memory 
It's been 15, 20 years or so since Jonathan died, and that, that, that wound is still fresh in David's heart. He remembers the affection he had for this deep, deep friend, and he desires to show love on behalf of that friend. His have to and his want to become the same. His, his promise, his should, becomes the same thing as his desire. His ought to and his want to, his responsibility and his pleasure become the same. And this is why I think it's a crucial concept, or that this is, this is what I think about when we look at the way the New Testament describes those of us who have been saved, this happens to us. When God regenerates our hearts, when God gives us a new heart, He makes the ought to and the want to become the same. The best way I've seen to describe this comes from a, a, a hymn from uh, John Newton, who also wrote Amazing Grace. That's the one you'll remember. But he wrote lots of other hymns. Uh, Tim Keller is the one that's quoted this a bunch of times I've heard. Uh, I put it on the screen for you. You can see this. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. Isn't that good? Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. This is what happens in David's life. He has seen the goodness, the grace, the love of God, and he is going to keep the promise he said he's going to. But his, his ought to and his want to become the same. His pleasure and his duty, they're joined together to part no more. God changes our hearts. He transforms us so that those of us who have received the love of God, we, we know we ought to love our neighbor, but that desire begins to well up in us. So that becomes the thing we want to do. Our pleasures, our delights, the, thing that, the things that would give us happiness, the things we seek after are no longer the stuff of this world. They're the stuff that God wants. Our hearts become aligned with Him. We seek first His kingdom. We desire His desires. We delight in being generous and loving the way He has been generous and loving to us. I, I don't know if this actually fits right here, but I just couldn't help but find a way to force this in my sermon today. We met yesterday as elders. We do the financial planning over a couple-month process for the fall up, upcoming year. And you have been so generous to Infinity Church. You've been so generous. So generous. God has poured His steadfast love into you, and you have poured it out to this church. And we are so grateful. And I tell you, one of the greatest delights we have is meeting together to figure out how to continue to pass it how to pass that generosity forward. And we're so excited. So come November 30th, we're going to tell you all about it. We're going to keep working on plans. It's so cool. Thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for the way that you have received love from the Lord and you have poured it out, especially to this church. Show loyal love because you have received loyal love. I do want you to see in this one last chapter that there is an alternative. There is another option. I, I never had seen this connection before between chapter 9 and chapter 10 until this week. So I want you to see, as we close, our la the, the, the other alternative. In chapter 10, we read about an Ammonite king who dies. And his son, whose name is Hanan, becomes the new king. And David sends servants to Hanan to comfort him and to console him. It was, it was a messenger envoy that just was there to, to so, show support for this man who had been a, an ally of King David's. But Hanan, the new king, has some, some uh, counselors who are suspicious. And they say, David's people aren't here to, to, to try to comfort you. They're here to spy on you. And so they decide to do something incredibly shameful. They take all these men, they shave off half their beards, 
and cut their robes at the waistline. Odd, I know it sounds so odd, but this is a way of shaming them for their, in, in their masculinity and in their ethnicity. A Jewish man would not have been cutting his beard. They'd let it grow according to the Torah. And probably, as we keep seeing the robe thing come over and over again in First and Second Samuel, robes represented your identity and your position. Like a priest has an ephod and a king has a robe, probably these men were wearing some kind of clothes that represented that they, they were coming on David's behalf. And so this other kingdom shames them and dis, dis, insults King David directly by cutting off their robes. Why, why did David send messengers there? Because of that, by the way, it leads to war. Like they knew it was coming. The Ammonites started mustering their army first. They shamed these men and they started getting their army ready. This is going to war. But why did David do this? Verse 2 of chapter 10, David and, and David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. Any guesses on what the Hebrew word is there translated? The ESV translates loyally? Hesed. The same word for the way that David treated Mephibosheth in chapter 9 and how God treated David in chapter 7. Same word. Here is David, the recipient of so much steadfast love that he's willing to show it to the crippled man living in the middle of nowhere who's a grandson of Saul. And he's even willing to show it to an allied king when his son takes the throne. That's how generous David is. He's showing hesed. He's showing love and loyalty and kindness to the far ends of the earth. But not everybody receives it. Some reject it. And when the Ammonites reject it, it doesn't go well for them. They go to battle and they are wiped out. There's a warning here to us. God's steadfast love is being offered to the ends of the earth. And I pray that you would receive it. But there is an alternative. You can reject it. Do not reject the loyal love of God. See the kindness of God daily. See His, thank, His blessings and respond to Him in thanksgiving and in worship. Do not reject your heavenly Father who has continued to pour out steadfast love and kindness to you for so, so long. God sent His Son Jesus to show you His kindness in a way that the world had never seen in dying for your sins and paying the debt you deserve to die to, to pay so that you no longer have to die forever in this world but can be with Christ, to be with God forever. That's what He's offered. But if you reject it, you're left outside. You're left away from God. You're left without God for all of eternity. Talking this week to Brad, he made a great connection to this moment, the parable of the, the two lost sons. We usually call it the parable of the prodigal son. Because we, we like his story. We don't like the older brother. <laughs> the end of that story, after Jesus talks about a man who had two, two sons, one squandered all his property, all of his inheritance from reckless living, but comes back and is received mercifully by the father, and they throw a big party. But the older brother is outside, angry that his father would show kindness to somebody else. That parable ends with the older brother still outside. And it's a way of Jesus saying, are you coming in or not? Are you going to be mad at the way I show kindness and grace to all the ends of the earth? Or are you going to come join the party? The Ammonites rejected David's loyal love and they were left outside the party. They did not get to come in. They did not get to participate in God's kingdom. Don't be left outside. Come in to the Father's kingdom. 
One last thing I want to show you from this passage. You may hear all this and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds great for David, even Mephibosheth. And I know Jesus has come, but you don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know the hardships I'm facing. You don't know how bad things look for me. And maybe it's not even like world-altering bad. You just have had a bad week. And you're like, I don't, I don't really have a lot of welling up kindness and, and celebration in my heart today. Well, one, come back, to, come back to Jesus. Like, he really is good enough. But I, I'll give you, in God's kindness upon kindness, he gives us one more way to worship him. There is someone in this passage who has a moment that may feel a little bit like you felt. Joab is an odd character we'll see later in these books. But when the Ammonites come, who are clearly the bad guys, and they're attacking Israel, who is clearly the good guys here, Joab leads the people out in battle, and something terrible happens. Israel gets surrounded. They're surrounded on two sides. The Syrians and the Ammonites have bounded together, and they're coming against Israel. And Joab looks up, and he can no longer see a, a clear way that this battle is going to go, go like they should. They're going to have to divide their people in half to fight on two sides. This, this could go really bad. That's what they're thinking. We know the end of the story. We do, just like God knows the end of your story. It's, it's going to work out. But in the middle... When they're surrounded on both sides, sometimes you're like, I know God's been kind to David. I know God's done all these things, but right now I'm surrounded, and I don't know how we're getting out of this. Joab pulls his men together, gives them a little pep talk, and it's filled with this theological gem. I want you to hear this. 2 Samuel 10, 12. Here's his pep talk. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Do you hear that? He didn't say, I know God's going to win this battle. He might not have. God may have had another way of solving this problem. Joab didn't know. But you know what he knew? He knew God is good. He knew that God is good. And so whatever God decides is good, ultimately is good. Do you trust God is good? Do you trust that his good really is good, even if it doesn't feel good? That can be really hard. It can be hard to see the kindness, the loving kindness of God when we're surrounded on two sides and we don't know how the battle is going to be won. But we can trust that God is good, that he has given an enormous amount of steadfast love towards you and that even in the middle of things not going the way you want them to, you can still show steadfast love to those around you. It can be your duty and your delight, your joy. You continue to, can continue to pursue God and honor Him and love your neighbor because He has promised that He is good and He is in control. You are loved. You are loved. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what Christ did on your behalf and because of a promise that God made to your forefathers long before you were born. Ephesians even tells us He, he predestined us before the foundation of the world. God has a plan. He's on his throne, and he's pouring out steadfast love. Will you receive it? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have gone to such great lengths to show your steadfast love to us. Father, we look at the way our lives go, and it's almost hard for us to believe. Because we see the promises we've made and not kept. We've seen the ways that we've said we're going to love, and we haven't loved and so, God, it's almost hard for us to see the way that David loved Mephibosheth and you continue to love your servants. It's, it's almost hard to even trust it, to believe it's really true. But you've proven once for all through your son it is true.
that your love really is true. Your kindness, your generosity, your steadfastness, your faithfulness, it really is true. So God, we trust you, whether the battle seems to be surrounding us on both sides or whether we seem to be sitting eagerly and joyously at your table today, wherever we are, we we trust you. We trust that you truly are kind and generous. And we receive that today. We long to receive it today. We long for that to, to be felt in such a deep way in our own hearts. God, we know that if you're working in that way in our hearts, it'll turn into generosity in others. God, may we be generous people. May we receive and celebrate your love today. Thank you. Thank you for your word. And thank you for your son. It's in his name I pray. Amen.